Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Over the course of his over four-decade career, Dennis Kucinich has served as a city councilman in Cleveland, then as that city's mayor, as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Ohio for 16 years, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States in 2004 and 2008, a radio talk show host, a lecturer, a consultant, and an author. And he joins us now to discuss his career and the story he tells about how government works and who it's working for in The Division of Light and Power, book published by Finney Avenue Press. And it's great, my great pleasure to, to welcome Dennis J. Kucinich to our show now. Hello. Uh, Leonard, uh, wonderful to be on uh, your show and to be on uh, WBAI. I've looked forward to this and, and I look forward to our discussion. Well, you began your political career as a rather young man, and you write that you were mistaken for a paper boy when you were campaigning door to door for city council. Uh, yes, that was when newspapers were regularly delivered door to door, <laughs> and I, uh, when I began my career, I was 20 years old, uh, and I um, looked at that point like I was probably about 12, and it produced but some hilarious moments. But the book opened. The book opens, Leonard, uh, when I had just been elected on my second try for city council. At that point, I had turned 23, and all of a sudden, there's blackouts occurring in downtown Cleveland. I'm listening to the news report earlier about heat-related blackouts, but Cleveland was experiencing uh, unexplained blackouts on its municipal electric system. And the book opens up with one that took place in Christmas, 1969. And then the reader goes on this journey with me of an exploration of uh, corporate espionage, corporate sabotage, of um, interference with the city's electric system and, fi and finances, of mob-directed assassination plots. This book, uh, is it really gives people an insight into government and some of the high stakes that occur in uh, decisions that are made by public officials. And we will go into those things in more detail, but I want to begin with this. Uh, you, you write, at the age of 16, I had the feeling that I would be mayor of Cleveland by the age of 30. Now, you grew up under rather modest circumstances. What led you to even think that way? I, I think it starts with uh, when John F. Kennedy was president and he, he issued a call to um, let the word go forth from this time and place that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. And of course, uh, he meant people his age, but the younger generation was also paying attention, as I was. And so I developed an interest in public service at a very early age. And as I recount in the book, I'm walking home after a basketball game with uh, my best friend, and uh, I just had this intuition, um, which I spoke. And um, I, it, I mean, it was really a, a very um, astonishing thing to say. Uh, you, you know, I came from a family of, as you said, modest means, to say the least. And uh, no one in my family had ever been in politics. And so all of a sudden, I just blurt out, I'm going to be mayor of Cleveland by the time I'm 30 <laughs> years old. And I had no idea why... Uh, I made that connection, but I felt it very strongly at that moment. So I. But you were off I, by a year. Well, I, I was. Uh, I uh, because 31. Of the 
because of the calendar. <laughs> but I had an intuition at an early age. And I think a lot of us uh, have intuitions uh, when we're young about what our work might be and what, what we might be doing with our lives. I, I don't think it's so unusual just that I articulated it, felt it, shared it with a friend who, of course, uh, uh, appropriately expressed uh, disbelief. <laughs> and when you were elected mayor, you were called the boy mayor. Did that sting at all? No, I mean, you know, look, I was America's youngest mayor, the youngest big city mayor at the time I was elected. I uh, took office. I was 31 years old. I mean, that's a fact. So I wasn't seeking to get away from that. But what I told the New York Times uh, when that happened, I said, look, I didn't I didn't want to be um, I didn't seek to be America's youngest mayor. I was seeking to be America's best mayor. And uh, and there was a precedent for uh, Cleveland mayor to to uh, uh, want that, because when Lincoln Steffens wrote his book, Shame of the Cities, he called uh, then Cleveland mayor Tom Johnson, the best mayor of the best governed city in America. So Cleveland uh, did have that that history. And I certainly was looking to follow in Mayor Johnson's footsteps and. Mm -hmm. Uh, saving the municipal electric system, which was his uh, creation. Now, you begin your book by making reference to that old saying, you can't fight City Hall. But you write that in order to fight City Hall, you have to first find where it is. City Hall is not just the physical structure, but the banks, the real estate combines, the investor-backed utilities. And uh, later we realized the mob. Yeah, uh, Cleveland uh, at that point was the third uh, uh, largest corporate city in America. Uh, we had an abundance of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, they wielded a, a tremendous amount of power politically, which I point out in the book. And in addition to that, Cleveland was uh, in the mid 70s, the bombing capital of America. There was open gang warfare between various uh, uh, mob factions for control of the Cleveland rackets. And of course, one of the mob's interests was City Hall and law enforcement policies, city contracts. And so I stepped into uh, a, um, a, a, a basically a very powerful campaign to save our city's municipal electric system with all of these uh, uh, countervailing forces that weren't necessarily interested in anything uh, that was in the public interest. <laughs> Do you think that when you were elected mayor of Cleveland at, at 31, you were prepared for the battles that you were soon to face? Oh, I certainly could was. anyone. Well, you know, I certainly was for the most part. Now, I'll, I'll because you've been in the city council already and uh, I, learned an awful lot. Leonard, I had been in politics for 10 years. Hmm. Now, some people want to walk right into a mayor's office. I had been in politics for 10 years. And the central issue of our municipal electric system, as the book opens, the reader is well aware that I was prepared to take that battle on. What I was not prepared for, and I don't know that any mayor in America could have been prepared for it, is uh, the biggest bank in Ohio uh, trying to play the heavy to extort our municipal electric system uh, out of the city, uh, uh, out of city control, by telling me, look, either you agree to sell the city's electric system to this private utility, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, which which was essentially a business partner of the bank, or we, the bank, will not renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't even taken out. So this was an extortionate conduct on behalf of the bank. Could I have been prepared for that? No. 
Well, you described that when you first arrived in the city council, you discovered that the role of legislatures is to be servants of the financial interest. So, um, right. That's right, Leonard. Uh, that, that's what this story is all about, right? Absolutely. In this case, they were attempting to privatize uh, a public service? Uh, it was all about converting the assets of the city into private use, whether mm. it was through tax abatements or uh, cut rate sale of city uh, land, uh, outright giveaways of uh, city assets or, uh, or contracts that were uh, that enabled someone to make a tremendous profit at the city's expense. Uh, I was able to reduce city spending in my term by 18% without cutting city services because I eliminated waste, fraud, and abuse. We were the only city in America which ran on a cash basis. I didn't borrow any money. And so, uh, and, I, and I did that because, you know, City Hall wasn't open to crooks. And I really made that very clear. Well, not all of your fellow uh, politicians agree with you, but uh, is, is the situation you describe unique to Cleveland? You say it no, goes on everywhere. I, this I is this relevant is, to all the states, United States and abroad where public Leonard, ownership is being discussed. Leonard, we're talking about human nature. Government has enormous assets that it's called upon to protect. Those assets belong to the people. And so privatization as a phenomenon is, as you uh, correctly assumed, going on all over the world. But I would like to uh, uh, reclaim the memory of Mayor Tom Johnson, who founded Muni Light, uh, on his position of why he believed in public ownership uh, at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, he said, I believe in public ownership of all municipal service facilities, of waterworks, parks, schools, and electric systems, because if you do not, if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They will corrupt your politics, rule your institutions, and finally destroy your, your liberties. And that's what this book so is Pete, about. It's about it's about pushing back and trying to protect our democratic traditions at a municipal level. And it's a pretty thick book, so there's a lot of pushing back necessary. People run for office to change the system, but um, I'm getting a, a sense from what you say that the system tends to change them. Absolutely, I, I and I. It, it, here's the way I believe that it works based on my experience, and that is that uh, I think most people who aspire to public office want to do good, and they, they want to help people. Uh, but you go into a system that then uh, seems to be impervious to change, but the truth is the system acts upon the individual elected office holder and changes that office holder either through blandishments, you know, emoluments, uh, through uh, other favors that come, through wanting to be part of the group, through not wanting to lose an election, or being concerned about holding on to what you have. And after a while, people can lose their way. Even the best people can lose their way. I didn't want anything material, so I wasn't really subject to uh, uh, the kind of um, offerings, let's say, that were presented to public officials as I was embarking on my career in Cleveland City Council. Well, you say that uh, some, 
you quote city council members as saying, all I want is a little ice cream. <laughs> and you got, you've got to vote right. Now, there was a suitcase filled with cash. Weren't you tempted at all oh, by the perks oh, that were oh being gosh. offered? No, not, not at all. I mean, I, that's not why I came into public office. When somebody, uh, when I was uh, going to help uh, a person running for office and uh, one of his supporters came to me with that suitcase full of cash and he opens up this old battered suitcase, turns it around from my view, and I'm looking at a suitcase. It could have been, you know, we're talking ten, twenty thousand dollars easily. And no, I, I at that moment in the book, I introduce uh, one of my spiritual guides, Sister Leona, who was principal of St. Aloysius uh, School back then. And she was my guide and kind of standing over my shoulder. And I recited a uh, a poem that she taught us when I was in the sixth grade called the minute and the importance of every minute. It's a, you know, the spiritual importance. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it forced upon me. Can't refuse it. Didn't seek it. Didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. Give account. If I abuse it, heaven help me. If I lose it, just one mm -hmm. tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. So, you know, Leonard, I believe there's such a thing as a soul. <laughs> and I think that, you know, every moment, uh, especially in politics, you get opportunities to give away a piece of your soul. You can't get it back when you start that. So I wasn't about to give up something that I consider to be uh, essential to who I am. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Dennis uh, J. Kucinich who has, uh, I, I can say your latest book, right? It's yes, from please. Finney Avenue Press, and it's called The Division of Light and Power because it's uh, largely about takeover of a power company, but uh, it's about a lot more. Uh, if, as you say, privatization is really a move from democratic governance, why were other members of the city government from both parties so willing to go along with the takeover? You write about how your party, the Democrats, was pushing for the sale of the light system and then was criticizing you for going after the banks. They called you un-American for raising questions about the right of banks to, to redline communities, <laughs> Democrats. Well, look, uh, there are Democrats and then there are Democrats. Uh, you know, I've never- Was Joe Manchin in Cleveland? Uh, Forgive no, me, no, that was a bad joke. No, 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 just keep something in mind. Uh, uh, you know, when you have a one, essentially one party rule of a community, uh, you're, you're looking at uh, what can be problematic in terms of trying to protect the public interest. And the Democrats in city council at that time were, you know, they had been heavily lobbied by the utilities and one utility in particular, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. And this utility made it a point to give free baseball tickets and other gifts to members of the Cleveland City Council. So people, you know, were essentially bought off, some on very small favors, others, uh, the favors were a little bit more significant. And this is not unusual when you're talking about legislative bodies. Uh, and, you know, whether it's a, a city, a state or a country, uh, people are influenced, this is human nature. The question is, will the person you elect be so influenced and sell out your interests? Uh, that happened in Cleveland at the time. And it fell to me, who was, you know, I was still a political neophyte, to challenge this system that I just felt 
Uh, that's not why I got in here. I didn't get in here to rubber stamp decisions that resulted in uh, the theft of, of city assets. I didn't get in here to destroy an electric system that provided 20 percent savings on electric bills as compared to the private power company with which it competed house to house in about a third of the city. To me, Leonard, it matters what people pay, uh, uh, how much they pay for electricity. And so, you know, just it was about economic democracy. and It was also about political democracy. Why, why was municipal light, uh, called popularly known as Muni Light, uh, the, the, the city's public power company, vulnerable to take over? Ah, and that is, that is the central question at the beginning of the book, because what had happened is that the private power company, which had uh, accelerated a takeover effort of the public, private, of the public power company, they, uh, their effort included the following, blocking repairs to our generating system uh, of Muni Light so that Muni couldn't make its own power, stopping Muni Light from uh, being uh, connected to the national grid. So we had to rely on an interconnection with the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. And then they uh, dragged their feet in providing such an interconnection in the event there was any kind of a an outage or a power failure. And what they did, and this was, you know, basically backed up by the United States uh, Justice Department and the Atomic Safety and Licensing Commission of Nuclear Regulatory Board, what this private utility did in their effort to take over our public utility, they actually, when the city asked for a transfer of power, they operated in such a way as to deliberately create a blackout on a municipal electric system. And then they sent their employees into the Muni Light neighborhoods with sales contracts saying, it looks like your power system isn't working. Why don't you sign up with us and you'll have a system that works? I mean, they played, they sabotaged the Muni system and they did everything they could, including sabotaging the city finances because they had the same law firm, the same law firm that advised the city and its financial dealing was the same was uh, C, turned out to be CEI's corporate law firm. I mean, this thing was rigged right from the beginning. And what made it even worse is that the media, because of the advertising revenue, the private utility was spreading around. The media was all in on promoting the sale. So the odds were pretty tough, uh, Leonard, to try to get in there to save this system. And we had a battle royal uh, organizing people at a neighborhood level to fight back uh, against this a uh, corporate effort to basically dominate uh, the, the most critical decisions in city government. So Cleveland's rather respected newspapers, the Cleveland Press and the Plain Dealer, did not investigate the inner workings of this deal? Investigate? Look at reporters who tried to unearth what was going on. Uh, some of them lost their jobs. I mean, th this was a whole different atmosphere where the interests of corporations were placed above the interests of the people of the city of Cleveland. And, and in the book, I cite chapter and verse editorials in both the Cleveland Press and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where they were advocating the sale of Munilite, even though they had full knowledge of all the dirty tricks that were going on against the system. I mean, this was a complete uh, um, uh, uh, vacation from the public interest. Uh, and and so it was up to me to fight back. And of course, I was criticized for standing up for the public interest in challenging 
the private uh, corporations, the Cleveland Electric Owning Company, and later on Cleveland Trust Bank, because I was just expected since, you know, all the other public officials, not, not all of them, but most of them were going along with the sale. Um, I was just expected to go along and how rude it was of me to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be selling this. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe uh, everything about this proposal is is not right. And so you well, know, when you, I started raising questions. You think the media would be happy? No, they weren't happy. <laughs> were you still a city councilman when you launched a referendum campaign to block the sale? Well, I just uh, I, the the um, the events began to move uh, towards a sale. Uh, but I had just left city council and was elected to the second highest elected office in Cleveland, which is the Cleveland clerk of the municipal courts. It's a judicial uh, type office. And that's when the sale started to move and they actually consummated the sale of the system. They sold it. And I said, well, I, you know, I, 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 the house that I'm in right now, I, I, you know, which I've lived in for almost 50 years. When that went on, I just literally went to the top of my steps under a, under a, uh, yellow light bulb, and I started to write uh, a, a plan to fight back. Uh, wasn't too, uh, a month later, as the campaign started to uh, unfold to save me any light, high-powered rifle shot was fired at, at me and missed my head by a fraction of, the, of an inch at my house. Hmm. And later on, when I became mayor, uh, I was told by police intelligence, uh, look, this is about muni light. You're stopping some people from making a lot of money. And later on, a U.S. Senate subcommittee report on organized crime in the uh, Midwest uh, verified that there was a mob-directed assassination plot, which I was, you know, just very lucky to escape. The readers will uh, uh, see how that happened. And it was just fate. Can't call it anything else well, that okay. uh, enabled me to survive. A mafia hitman from Maryland told NBC that he was ready to take the job of assassinating you because he said, well, we couldn't buy Kucinich. Uh, but you were lucky in an odd way because you were close to dying from some other problem and you were in a hospital instead of uh, leading the Columbus Day Parade. Where yeah, you were supposed Leonard, to, where the timing, we right. The timing of that was extraordinary. I was uh, preparing... Uh, I had a meeting at my house with uh, Carl Stokes, who uh, was uh, at that point was a broadcaster in New York. And he came to Cleveland. Uh, he's a former mayor, uh, mayor, first African-American mayor of a major city. So we were going to have breakfast together. Uh, he was a little bit late. I was upstairs in my library. And, you know, keep in mind, we, you know, we already had all these stories of, of plots circulating. And, and I all of a sudden I pass out. And I wake up in a room that's filled with blood, literally. So Carl just arrives. Uh, my wife calls him to come up the stairs. He picks me up. He, he was dressed immaculately. He picks me up. There's blood all over me and all over him. He puts me in a bed uh, waiting for the EMS. Uh, long story short, I lost six units of blood. Uh, they had a, had a complete transfusion. And uh, we found out a couple of days later when I came to, uh, the police were surrounding uh, the hospital and on my floor. And I said, what's going on? And the chief of police eventually told me that uh, had I been in that parade, instead of going being rushed to the hospital with a bleeding ulcer, that uh, I that I was uh, supposed to uh, have been hit there. 
so you know it's it's i mean the book contains uh, uh these these stories they're all documented i mean everything in the book's documented and and I'll, is that I'll, why it's so thick it's yeah, a big absolutely. book yeah there's yeah there's uh uh, probably about 150 pages of documentation, which I felt was absolutely critical to the story because back then in Cleveland, there were people are denying anything this, like this happened. It was li like living in an alternative universe. Any of us who have ever had the experience of being with anybody or in a group that gets gaslighted, like you're you know, basically told, well, that's not happening, this is happening. And the people in Cleveland, because the media was in on the push to sell uh, Muni Light, and then blame me for the default because I didn't sell Muni Light. Uh, they they created this different city essentially, mm -hmm. and people did not understand what was going on until years and years after I left office, and some still don't. Some people in the media in Cleveland today continue to decouple the default from saving Muni Light. Say, well, Dennis saved Muni Light, but the city went into default. Well. If I if I had uh, not if I had sold Muni Light, uh, they the bank would have renewed the city's credit on loans I hadn't taken out. So you know I was given a choice. The choice I was presented on December fifteenth, nineteen seventy eight: either sell the system or the city goes into default, uh, or you save the system, and uh, uh, and and the consequences are going to be on your on your shoulders. So you know well, it would say. It was a uh, unusual time, shall we say, in, uh, in in our city, and unprecedented that this these events would actually surface in a big city. There are so many twists and turns to this story. I was starting to say that you launched a referendum campaign to block the sales, and you got thirty thousand signatures. I don't know if that's a lot in Cleveland. But... Oh yeah, you only needed eighteen. But it was derailed. Yes. Because the political establishment was set up to do anything and everything it could to block the will of the people. And so we fought it out in court. In the meantime, I got elected mayor. First act in office was to cancel the sale. And one would think, well, the story would have ended there. No, no, no. The story in some ways, it's the second uh, part of the story, which becomes even, even more twisted. Because despite the fact that I got elected, the private power company they take court action to start tagging city water and electric department equipment because the previous mayor had not paid for electricity, which the city had to buy because we had we, we didn't have generators and for which the city was charged three times the going rate. And so the previous mayor said, well, you know, the only way we're going to be able to pay this light bill is to sell the light system. So I get elected, I cancel the sale, and then I have an $18 million light bill looming. And we had to find a way to pay that off uh, over the course of the next uh, year. And it was challenging because we were trying to eliminate, uh, uh, because we also had this debt on top of it that suddenly the bank said, you're gonna have to pay off uh, the notes that are coming due that we expected they were just going to roll over. That was customary. And they wouldn't do that. They said that's when they tried to pressure me to sell the municipal electric system. So we were because putting the, squeeze. Because the banks were in collusion with CEI? 
Well, the one bank in particular, the Cleveland Trust, which is now defunct, uh, at one point was the most powerful bank in northern Ohio, one of the biggest banks in America. Uh, but And they made it very clear. And screaming front page headlines, had to sell Muni Light. Uh, after we went into default, uh, the banks denied that Muni Light was ever a price. Even though it was like live on a six o'clock news, the demand. It's like it didn't happen. This is the kind of... Um, uh, alternate reality I was talking about, you know, there's uh, two writers 50 years ago named Berger and Luckman wrote a book called uh, the so uh, that had to deal with the social construction of reality. That is that what we know is real is socially constructed and it's culturally affirmed. And the media plays a role in that. The people of Cleveland were given this totally different reality and they bought it pretty much. Uh, and and even though the people voted for a tax to pay off the defaulted note, I asked them to do it. I said, let's get the city out of default that we should have never been in the first place. The banks who promised to take the city out of default, if the tax passed, once the tax passed, reneged on their promise. I mean, this was some of the most vicious uh, games that were played with an American city. I, I would say you'd probably have to go to uh, the way some of the U.S. banks treated central and Latin American countries to find a parallel with uh, what they tried to pull in Cleveland. But and aren't we seeing to... something similar now uh, with the the different presentations of reality that you get on Fox and on CNN and on MSNBC and, and a wide range of newspapers? Leonard, listen, I led the, you know, because of what I learned in Cleveland about the capacity of government to lie, that's why I ended up challenging the war in Iraq. This is why I led 125 Democrats in opposing the Iraq war resolution. And anybody who's listening can go right now to any search engine, type in Kucinich uh, uh, Iraq uh, uh, resolution analysis, October 2nd, 2000, uh, 2002. And they'll see that I, I had it nailed like, Chapter and verse, I knew they were lying to us, and I put it, I put all that in a document, which I distributed to members of Congress before the vote. But, you know, so are people, is it possible that people are not always told the truth about what's going on? Uh, yeah. Again, part of this is human nature. But you know what else is human nature? Human nature is our ability to take a stand. It's our ability to, to fight back. It's our ability to put what we have and what we know on the line you know, in, in order to uh, uh, try to protect the public interest. So the only reason a game ends up being rigged is if you don't fight back. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, 16 tons. And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. <laughs> I owe my soul to the company store. <laughs> We're not going back to those days of 16 tons. I forgot to mention when I was introducing my guest today that Dennis Kucinich also has tried his hands at at singing. Oh, my God. You know what? Uh, uh, with apologies to Tennessee Ernie Ford, 
Um, and, and I will say that uh, that came from an event that I was at with Jesse Jackson. And I, I just it was a spur of the moment thing, which, uh, you know, is by no way of uh, uh, moving the blame away from myself or attempting that. But uh, look, the, the underlying message of that song is valid today. And that is, uh, uh, you know, the striving for economic freedom, which is something that you, you can't. You know, you can't really have a political democracy if you don't have an economic democracy. And that's why what people pay, uh, what people pay their uh, pay for utilities is an issue. If they're and most often, if it's a private utility, they're paying too much. Well, these events took place in the late 1970s, but you're writing about them now because you see them as, as relevant to a current situation? Leonard, it took me over 40 years to finish the book. I started it in November of 79. I was so close to the events, I couldn't write the story. It well, was you such said a, a pandemic helped. Well, not really. It was a shattering experience. I, I began the seventh draft of the book uh, in 2018, and I just kept writing until I, I was finished. But, you know, it, it, it achieves a real importance today because uh, with the pandemic and the American uh, rescue uh, plan monies, when that money runs out, as it will in a few years, cities across America are going to be once again facing new demands for privatization in order to come up with money to run the cities. And so this book is a handy guide for every activist, every citizen, so st how to stand up and how to actually ask the right questions to be able to protect uh, what's important to your community and to be able to push back against the privatizers. I, I mean, it's not only in America. It's, it happens all over the world. And, and most people don't know what to do. They don't know how to fight back. And particularly when you have high ranking government officials who may be promoting it and trying to argue the the glorious benefits of turning over a water system, a sewer system, parking meters or whatever uh, to some private company. It is axiomatic. Public public ownership, public control uh, of, of a utility or an asset, private ownership, private control and private policies in the private interest. If you have um, a, a, a public ownership, it's going to be cheaper and you're going to keep taxes low. If you have private ownership, the rates will go up and taxes will go up, too. That's just the way it is. And for me, uh, look, I'm all for business, but I'm not for business trying to steal what belongs to the people in, in, in our cities. Was the public behind what you were trying to do? You barely survived a recall election and then you lost the next mayoral election. Well, the, were, the were they behind the, the CEI Take over. Uh, Look, the recall uh, election, I helped to facilitate with a, uh, um, uh, a maladroit move uh, involving a police chief. Uh, but with my uh, 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 candidacy for reelection in 1979, all of those interest groups, especially the bank, the banks wouldn't renew the city's credit. People passed the text and saying, hey, Dennis, you told us we were going to get out of default. People didn't understand the banks kept us in default until after I left office. Uh, and there was still this effort, even after the people voted in a, uh, to uh, uh, affirm the city's ownership of Muni Light by two to one margin, 
concurrent with the banks reneging on their promise was the corporate community's continued insistence that the light system still had to be sold. So our, our government was totally destabilized on a daily basis, even creating other defaults. I mean, it was it was madness, really. And so what I was called upon to do is just try to try to steer a steady course to protect the city's interests as long as I held office, to which I did. And uh, it took the people of Cleveland at least 15 years for anybody to actually sort out what happened. And that is that I made a decision that saved our municipal electric system, uh, saving, you know, up, let's say up to 30 years ago, hundreds of millions of dollars. Today, the savings for taxes and utility rates would be much higher. But yeah, it took people a while to sort it out. So, you know, I knew I was going to look, look, when I said no to the bank, I knew that politically the chance of me being elected, not just in 1979, but ever again was going to be slim or, or none. And I mean, I knew that I, I knew the risk and I write about that. I knew the risk I was taking, but you know, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't become mayor to sell out the soul of my city. I was not going to do it. But was uh, this unique to Cleveland? Because in, in uh, our area, the New York metropolitan area, pretty much all electricity is supplied by private corporation, Con Ed and, and other less electricity suppliers. Right. And people uh, end up paying a premium. Uh, there's over 2000 municipal electric systems in America providing power to communities. In some cases, the rates are probably one half of what you're paying in New York. And so, you know, uh, we end up existing for the utilities instead of, you know, us uh, instead of uh, the other way around. And so the whole idea about a utility, it's about use and they end up using us. And when we're supposed to be using their service. So, you know, I, um, every community has a choice. And I bring that up in the book. This is why the book, uh, the division of light and power is important because people can actually learn about the right of utility franchise, how you start your own utility. And I think more and more around America, when people see how much they're paying uh, for, you know, a private company and see how much they could pay if it was a public power, uh, save a lot of money and you keep taxes low. And to me, um, to me, it just seemed axiomatic that you want to have services that are available to people at the lowest possible cost. But now uh, it, it's now the, the public utility is now called Cleveland Public Power. Their utility rates are no longer cheaper than CEIs. And, and well, yeah, I know. I know. Reliability. That, look, just because you have a public power system doesn't mean it cannot be mismanaged. And it's been mismanaged. And that's uh, that's something that, you know, maybe I'll be able to do something about in a not too distant future. But I think that the um, uh, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to have a, a utility, public or private, and lose money. You really have to screw up to, <laughs> to lose money. And especially now with this heat wave. Well, People, again, their air conditioners it, are running like mad. Well, it, they are. And that, you know, requires connections to a national grid so you can keep the power on. Because if you have a if you have a heat wave and you lose power, it is a nightmare as people everywhere are finding out right now. 
And the opposite is true in terms of if it's cold, like what happened in Texas, uh, the ERCOT didn't fix the, the the infrastructure. They should have kept it up. They knew for 10 years they had to spend money to do it. Didn't want to do it. Uh, you look at PG&E out in California. They wouldn't make repairs to their infrastructure. Paradise, California burns down. So as a result, so there are consequences to handing over the keys of the kingdom to these utilities. And so that's why, you know, this book uh, will uh, is already prompting a new discussion nationally about why in the world do we let these utilities have control and why are they able to charge us, you know, an arm and a leg for for power when we could have our own system and 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 operate it uh, more efficiently, uh, cheaper. Um, that again, that doesn't mean that the government's always going to uh, be 100 percent right in the way they do things. They're not. I, as chairman of a congressional investigative subcommittee, I can cite chapter and verse of where government fails and and uh, uh, sometimes. But on the key issue of whether or not the people have a right to own these facilities, it is indisputable if we're going to have anything that remotely approaches a democracy. And uh, then it's up to the people to make sure it has management that knows how to run something in the interest of the people. That doesn't always happen, but it is up to the people. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Dennis J. Kucinich, who has written a book called The Division of Light and Power. Uh, you mentioned hearings by the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What got the federal government involved in the Cleveland situation? That, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company had to apply for licenses to operate the uh, Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant and also the Perry nuclear power plant, both on Lake Erie. And as part of the application process, they had to undergo an antitrust review. And during that antitrust review, uh, it became apparent that uh, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company was playing very dirty and using anti-competitive tactics against our municipal electric system. In addition to that, the city of Cleveland, uh, temporarily, albeit, uh, filed an antitrust damage suit against the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company in federal court. And that produced uh, millions of pages of documents that further supported the case of antitrust violations, you know, which involved, you know, price fixing, for example, and, uh, you know, in, in engaging in, in attempts to monopolize uh, with other utilities as well. And so a private utility. So it was uh, a, the legal battle which caused documentation through discovery to be produced. It was the federal government's uh, investigation into the internal workings of the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company that produced all this documentation. And Leonard, what you might find interesting is that while the, um, uh, the book has uh, the reference to the documentation, I also have included uh, another innovation in that there is a, a website people can go to uh, if they, you know, once they purchase the book, which will enable people to look at the actual court documents and the actual findings of the Department of Justice and the uh, Atomic Safety and Licensing Commission of the NRC. So you can see, you know, they can read for themselves what the findings were. And it's quite voluminous. And of course, the book would have 
been thousands of pages if I had uh, had to include it uh, even in the appendix. So I just put it up on a different website that people can access. But everything in the book's true. It's all documented. And and what also is documented is that I was America's youngest mayor. I you know I hadn't been I'd been in politics ten years, elected at uh, age twenty three. But I was the youngest mayor in the country. I was only thirty one years old, and I was taking on all all of these um, uh, interest groups that were conspiring to steal our municipal electric system and and who just wanted to capsize a city government so they could retake control. What other city services tend to be vulnerable to takeovers? Well, one of the things that was happening is they were giving away tax dollars in the form of tax abatements. Our, our uh, schools were on the threshold of bankruptcy and the city of Cleveland at that point uh, was able to give tax abatements to a bank. <laughs> this is one of the big stories in the book, a $12 million tax abatement, a national city bank, which uh, was offended when uh, the, the Episcopal bishop raised the question, is, is this moral? Um, and the, the, before I became uh, mayor, the city was, you know, giving away assets on a wholesale basis whether it was uh, uh, city parks, uh, uh, land, um, you know, the talk about getting rid of our public auditorium, uh, getting rid of our sewer system to a regional authority, picking up cash from doing that. Uh, any, any way the city could pick up a couple extra bucks. And it wasn't because the city needed the money for uh, services. They needed the money to feed a middle management payroll that was absolutely exploding and, uh, uh, and at the same time, unbeknownst to us, long before I took office, the city was expanding the payroll by taking money from bond funds, which is supposed to be used for building things, and using them for general operating purposes. So money that should have been used for you know, fixing sewers and building uh, uh, municipal buildings was instead going to payroll. And so by the time I took office, this practice became known and we then hmm. had to find a way to refinance uh, that deficit as well. So we were stuck with paying off an electric bill, having to pay off uh, missing bond funds, replace them, and deal with banks that were forcing us to uh, pay the... Uh, uh, either sell the electric system or they wouldn't renew the city's credit. Keep in mind that just a year earlier, all the banks, uh, to, and, and, and in particular two years earlier, all the banks signed off on Cleveland's uh, uh, credits that had the best rating. It was all great. It was only after I took office and said no to the sale of Muni Light that all of a sudden, oh, the city's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, years yeah. after you left the office, the Cleveland City Council honored you for having had the courage and, and foresight to stand up to the banks because they said that, that was quite a few years city. later. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they said it saved the city an estimated $195 million between 1985 and 1995. But then you ran for Congress and you served for 16 years. Were you gerrymandered out of your seat in the House of Representatives? Uh, I was uh, in 2011 uh, when the new uh, uh, lines were being drawn. 
the uh, leading Democrats in Ohio, not Republicans. Yes, I'm a Democrat. Leading Democrats in Ohio uh, looked at the map where my seat was protected, and they basically dictated that my seat had to be, and not my seat, the Cleveland area seat, had to be chopped up or they, the Democratic Party, would sue to overturn the Republican plan. And to show, and to show you the idiocy of it, out of 16 seats, the Democrats ended up with four. And yet, you know, Ohio at that point was still a toss up state. So it should and have been dealing for state. eight seats, settled for four. And they did that, you know, in part just to uh, uh, make sure that I didn't have a district that I could uh, run and win. And so, you know, the, when people talk about political parties, you have to, uh, as I said, there are Democrats and there are Democrats. Well, we have very little time left, but I want to address one other theme that runs through your book. It's how you found partisan labels confining. The press take on you during the 2004 presidential campaign was that you were kind of a, a nutty leftist. Uh, but I've seen you described as a neoconservative. And you, you've spoken before <laughs> the CPAC convention where you said, I feel comfortable anywhere. So, I do. Uh, I do. I don't. And, I, and you I, and you appeared for uh, you were contributed to Fox News on the O'Reilly factor. Well, I will tell you, they never told me what to say and they couldn't have. You know, that, that was not going to happen. And I was able to see. Here's the way I look at it. How do you change people's minds if you don't talk to them? How do you go to an audience? You know, the, we, we understand the Fox audience, but if they can't hear from someone who has my point of view, how do you change their minds? And so for me, it was easy. I'm not afraid of getting into a discussion with anyone. You can, people can always look at my voting record. You know, maybe some people didn't like uh, uh, the fact that I wouldn't condemn someone who happened to be a conservative or Republican. But I led the effort against the war in Iraq. I led the effort as a committee ch chairman of a leading uh, investigative subcommittee to look at the subprime meltdown. And I was one of the leaders in Congress on the environment and civil rights in all those areas. Look at where someone stands on an issue. Forget the labels, because labels are often deceiving. They don't, they don't describe who we are. And today we get so bound up in whether someone's a Democrat or Republican. Hey, both political parties have failed the American people. Let's get real. Now, Frank Jackson, the, the current mayor of Cleveland, announced that he won't be running for reelection. Are you thinking of uh, running for the office again? Well, I'm in the, I'm in the race. Uh, about uh, 10 days ago, I decided that um, I, I want to use my talents and abilities to try to help my city once again. And yeah, I'm, I'm in the race. Absolutely. And uh, one of the messes you're going to have to clean up is, is the electrical system. Well, you know, the, the, yes, there are efforts, partisan efforts to try to frustrate our right to vote. But, you know, there's another dimension to this, which is current existing registered voters who do have the right to vote, whose rights are not being thwarted just by, you know, going to the polls. They're not voting and they're not voting in Cleveland. It, I don't think we had 30 percent of the people who voted in the last uh, mayor's election because people just feel government isn't there for them. And so for those people who do vote, we have to inspire them to turn out at the polls. Otherwise, if you're not inspiring them, the lack of inspiration is also a disincentive. 
for people to vote. So let's, you know, give people something to vote for and they'll turn out. But the, the I'm not sure our politics right now um, is conducive to producing the inspiration people want. And, and you know, and a feeling that the government is there for them at, at every time. I know that there's been some changes as of late that could suggest we're moving in the right direction. But this, this is something that goes on at all levels of government. And let's face it, locally, this is the government that's closest to the people. People may not understand the complexities of what goes on at a federal level or, level or know even less about the state. But people at a local level... They can relate if their neighborhood's being overrun by crime, if the streets are in disrepair, if uh, the uh, waste collection or recycling isn't working. Uh, people will connect with uh, local we, government, and that's a good thing. We've run out of time. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. But good luck with your future plans and with the sale of this book, Dennis J. Kucinich's book, The Division of Light and Power, published by Finney Avenue Press. Thank you for being on our show. Wow, what a great uh, opportunity to speak with you, Leonard, and I look forward to uh, perhaps having an opportunity to do that down the road. And thanks to WBAI for making this possible. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear uh, some of our previous shows, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it right now to keep the kind of unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Without your help, there is no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at large so we can continue to bring you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who has already uh, stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, we thank you so much. And we're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when Mia Bloom and Sofia Moskalenko will discuss their eye-opening new book, Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon. We'll see you then.